0: You're listening to the Clergy Chick Podcast. My name is Rhonda Blevins. I'm the Clergy Chick. From October the 25th, 2020 at Chapel by the Sea in Clearwater Beach, Florida, the text is Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. for you, how long do you think you could stand on one foot? How many of you think you could stand on one foot for one minute? Raise your hand. Keep them raised. If you think you could stand on one foot for one minute. Two minutes? Keep them raised. Three minutes? Five minutes. You think you could stand on one foot for five minutes? Does anybody think you could stand keep them raised. Does anybody think you could stand on one foot for the duration of my sermon? Nobody, (laughs) nobody, not even the yoga teacher could stand. What, What are you saying about my sermons, people? Huh? There's an ancient story that comes out of the Jewish Talmud. It's about a guy who went seeking. He was a Gentile, and he came to the Rabbi Shammai. And he was thinking about converting to Judaism, but he had this one request He asked the Rabbi Shammai, I will convert to Judaism if you can tell me the entire law as I stand on one foot. And Rabbi Shammai sent him away. He was annoyed by this ridiculous question. And so the guy went away. Thing is, I don't really blame Rabbi Shammai. I mean... The Jewish Torah has 613 laws. Do you think you could teach the entire Torah, the entire law, 613 laws, in the amount of time that a guy, a normal guy, could stand on one foot? No, it's a ridiculous proposition, isn't it? So I can't blame the Rabbi Shammai for sending him away. It's just too complicated, right? And that's sometimes what religions do, isn't it? We tend to complicate things, don't we? Make it more difficult than it has to be. Now take our neighbors down the road, the Church of Scientology. The Church of Scientology, do you think if you went to one of the leaders there and said, can you tell me the entire teaching of the church in Scientology while I stand on one foot, what do you think they would do? They would laugh at you. They would say, no way, go away. Because what you have to do for the Church of Scientology, I understand, is you have to take all these courses. Is that right? You have to take all these courses and you kind of work your way up. This is my understanding. Now, as a business model, it's great because these courses are very, excuse me, very, very expensive, I understand. So as a business model, it's great. But as a religion, well, I'll let you be the judge. But before you judge too harshly, Think about our own Christian history. I'm not sure that we've been much better in our 2,000-year history. Think back to uh, 1519. In fact, it was 503 years ago this Saturday when we're, we're told that Martin Luther, the great Christian Protestant reformer, right, he tacked his 95 theses on the Wittenberg door. And why was he angry? Why was, what was Martin Luther and others, what were they protesting? Well, Luther, we're told, was protesting the the practice of selling indulgences. Do you remember this from Christian history at all? That the church was selling indulgences? Basically, you could buy your way out of sin. Anybody eat a little too much this week? Gluttony, that'll be $50. Anybody envy this week? Oh, envy, that's a big one. Oh, envy, that's going to be $100. Anybody um, have lust in their heart? You know how the church feels about this sex stuff, right? Anybody have lust in their hearts? $5,000! So the church was selling indulgences. You could even buy people out of purgatory, and Luther saw this for what it was, and so he protested, he tacked the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door. These indulgences, it's actually a pretty good business model, Right? But as a religious practice, you be the judge. <laughs> now, that Protestant Reformation, about, well, 503 years ago, we, we set the date back in 1519. So I think that's right, 1519. And so, the, the battle cry, if you will, of the Protestant Reformation, the kind of takeaway, the one thing that's memorable. What they tried to get people to understand or realize and what they were trying to convince people of is is this Latin phrase, sola scriptura, which in English translates as only scripture. And so this was a protest against the popes and against the bishops and against the church and against the hierarchy. Scripture only, you don't need a pope is what they were saying. So my beloved Catholic friends that are here today and worshiping with us online, this is just a little bit of Protestant history if you'll endure this with us for a moment. So Sola Scriptura. And how do you think that played out? 1519, Sola Scriptura, only Bible. The printing press had only been around for about 80 years at that point. The literacy rate, can you guess what that was in Germany in 1519? About 5%. Maybe a little more. Sola Scriptura in the hands of only the wealthiest, only the elite, only the educated 5%. Sola Scriptura. But how do you think that's played out as a business model? <laughs> I'm no business person, but, but here's what I know about Bible as a business model. Did you know that 91% of American households have a Bible? And did you know that uh, most American, has, or the average American household has four Bibles in their home? Think about it. How many Bibles do you have in your house? Uh, all right, there's one, about that many. Guess how many I have? <laughs> yeah, you can't count. I've got so many Bibles. I've got Bibles everywhere. There's Bibles everywhere. If you walk into my office, these Bibles will fall on you. I'm just kidding. That's not true. <laughs> so... 91% of American households, four Bibles per average household. The Bible uh, publishing industry, people spend a half a billion dollars per year on Bibles. The Bible is not only the, most, the best-selling book of all time, it's the best-selling book of the year every year. So as a business model, pretty, pretty good model, right? But how about as a religious practice? Well, I'll let you be the judge. Diana Butler Bass, uh, a noted church historian, uh, back when we were celebrating the f- the 500-year the, the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, she asked her Twitter followers this. She said, Protestants, it's been 500 years. What is your dream for the next 500 years? So I want to pose that question to you. It's been 500 years. What would be your dream for the next 500 years? years. Hold on to that for just a minute. As we think about that, I think it's important to think about what is most important to Jesus. That makes a little sense, right? You know, we're a church, we're Christians. And so we got to think about what was most important to Jesus. In fact, we got to ask Jesus kind of to boil down the gospel into a nutshell. What would it be, Jesus, so that I could stand on one foot in heels as you told me what the gospel boils down to in a nutshell. I am pretty impressed by that. Look at that. And what did Jesus say when the lawyer, Pharisee, came to him saying, <clears throat> What is the greatest commandment? He's trying to trick Jesus to either get him in trouble with the authorities or with his own followers. And you know what Jesus said, right? Because we just read it a moment ago. But before I read it again to really drill it in, I want to see if maybe you can do it while you're standing on one foot if i can read the answer to the question while you stand on one foot do i have any volunteers that would be willing to try to stand on one foot while i boil the gospel into a nutshell through the very words of jesus go ahead step out into the aisle if you're willing anybody in the choir loft? here okay? okay i've got one taker up here anybody up in the balcony you know don't do that you might fall over that'd be a bad that'd be a bad scene all right so we got a few people all right oh even my own husband is willing to try this All right, anybody in the cry room? No? One foot? Okay, there's Dr. Mike's going to stand up there. Oh, Laura. Okay, here we go. One foot on your mark, get set, go. (laughs) You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, who was successful? All right, a few of you, a few of you. Very good. Well done. Thank you. Good job, guys. You see, we don't need to complicate this thing, it boils down to two commandments, people love God and love your neighbor. That's it. Some of you sometimes will tease me, why do you talk about love so much? Well, now you know. Or in the words of Hamilton, if you don't know, now you know. Thank you for that. (laughs) That's it. It's this verb. In fact, these two commandments can be boiled down into one action word. English teachers know the difference between a verb and a noun, right? A, A verb is what, Donna? It's an action word. It's an action word, one word, love. You see, some churches, uh, maybe you've been a part of churches like this. I know I have. Some churches uh, think it's really important to to have all the right beliefs. They're all about beliefs. You have to have all the right beliefs in your brain. And they boil it down to having all of these right beliefs, and they complicate it. They have, I took this course in seminary called Systematic Theology. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, professor, if you're watching. Systematic theology, and you, all the theology, everything you believe has to line up, and it has to be this complicated system. And some churches are all about having all the right beliefs. And guess what? If you don't believe like I believe, uh-oh, you are doomed. Dun-dun-dun. That's some churches. Other churches, it's all about how you feel. Maybe you've been to churches like this, or, or, or maybe... Uh, Maybe you, you know, grew up in a church like this where, where they create these worship experiences that's very emotive, like ecstatic, right? And they try to kind of gin up this certain feeling that you can feel God. And, and they're, they're very good at doing this, at producing a worship service where the emotions are stirred, kind of like a good movie, right? It can get you to feel certain things, sadness or fear or joy, happiness, Right? So they, it's all about how you feel. That's some, some churches. But I've got to ask you a question. What good are beliefs and feelings if they don't translate into action? <laughs> See, Jesus Christ, when he, he, when he was teaching, he never said, here's a systematic theology that you must agree to before you can enter into my kingdom. I don't remember that from the Bible. Nor did he say, oh, you've got to feel this certain way before you can enter into my kingdom. I don't remember that from Scripture. A black preacher friend of mine used to teach young preachers this. Preacher, you've got to give them something to do. So if you'll notice, I often try to give you something to do, but that something to do that I often try to give you really boils down to one action word. What is it? Yep, yeah, you got it. So how do we do that? How do we love? We're supposed to love God. How do we love God? Well, we love God, and I think the choir sang about that a few moments ago. We love God by loving the thing that God loves. What does God love? Yep. There's a verse that comes to mind: John 3:16: "For God so loved the world." So how do we love God? We love God by loving the world, because that's what God loves. Strange thing about love: love is the only thing I can think of that we get more of by giving it away. And we all want love, don't we? If we're really honest. Even the macho men, maybe if they were to be vulnerable and real with us might even say, "You're a macho man, Brian." Don't we all <laughs> Don't we all want love? Here's what author Glennon Doyle has to say about that. She writes about the human condition and how at the end of things we just want love. We hurt people and we are hurt by people. We feel left out, envious, not good enough, sick and tired. We have unrealized dreams and deep regrets," she writes. We are certain that we were meant for more and that we don't even deserve what we have. We feel ecstatic and then numb. We wish our parents had done better by us. We wish we could do better by our children. We betray, and we are betrayed. We lie, and we are lied to. We say goodbye to animals, to places, to people we cannot live without. We are so afraid of dying, also of living. We have fallen in love and out of love, and people have fallen in love and out of love with us. We live with rage bubbling. We are sweaty, bloated, gassy, oily. We love our children. We long for children. We do not want children. We are at war with our bodies, our minds, our souls. We are at war with one another. We wish we'd said all those things while they were still here. They're still here, and we're still not saying those things. We know we won't. We don't understand ourselves. We don't understand why we hurt those we love We want to be forgiven, we cannot forgive. We don't understand God, we believe, we absolutely do not believe. We are lonely, we want to be left alone, we want to belong, we want to be loved, we want to be loved, we want to be loved, she writes three times. So back to the story from the Talmud about the guy thinking about converting to Judaism only if a rabbi could tell him the whole law while standing on one foot. And so he gets shunned from Rabbi Shammai and he ends up at the doorstep of Rabbi Hillel. And he says, Rabbi Hillel, I'll convert to Judaism if you can give me the entire law while I stand on one foot. And Rabbi Hillel said this while he stood on one foot, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. The rest is the explanation of this. So go and study it. So back to the question that Diana Butler Bass posed. It's been 500 years Protestants. What do you dream for us for the next 500 years? You want to know how I answered her? Thinking about the battle cry of the Protestant Reformation, I said, sola caritas. I had to look the Latin up. Only love. That's it. Next 500 years, if we could live into that, what kind of world would we have? How much better would the world be? And so, people of faith, I invite you to do a little self-reflection for a moment. You can do this in your brain, or even if you can write it down if you have a pen, a bulletin. I want you to rank yourself on a scale from 1 to 10. Kind of do a little self-evaluation. How are you growing in love? With one being, yeah, not so much and ten being, I'm booming with this. I'm doing great. Where are you? How are you growing in love? And my second question is like it. It's an evaluation of our church family, of how we're doing as a church, because it's not about buildings and budgets and bodies, or as I like to say, buildings and budgets and butts. It's about love. And I think the metric could be, should be, needs to be this. And how would you answer this on a scale from 1 to 10? As a result of participating in Chapel by the Sea, I am becoming a more loving version of myself. If you're growing in love and the church is helping you do that, then we're doing our job. We're doing our job. If we're not, we've got work to do. And guess what? Spoiler alert. We've got work to do. Do love. Enact love. Grow in love by giving it away. Thanks for tuning in to the Clergy Chick Podcast. Until next time, keep on shining.